Hello, everyone. Today is December 14th, 2022. My guest today is Lauren Bonifant. Lauren is a doctoral candidate in medical. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. <laughs> I, I'm usually pretty good about it, too. It's a uh, bio- biomedical sciences. Biomedical sciences. We don't need to start over. If we can just roll on with this one. Whatever you want. I don't mind. Okay. So, Lauren, I reached out to you using Skype, Skype for scientists, Skype mm-hmm. a scientist. And what made you want to put your services out for Skype a scientist? Yeah. Uh, I have been doing Skype a scientist, uh, I think since I started grad school, because that's when I like officially felt like a scientist. Uh, So since 2017, uh, and I just do it every year. I love doing outreach. I've gone to my daughter's school to do like the career day to talk about like being a scientist, because I feel like, I mean, I know I get really mad. watching shows and being like, oh, that's not even a thing that exists. Like a show I'm watching recently had a DNA sequencer, which like, yes, we can sequence DNA, but no one calls it a DNA sequencer. And like the people who are doing it aren't the people who do it in real life. And so I just like, you know, giving people the experience of one type of scientist because there are certainly many types. Uh, and I always really enjoy it. This is actually a really cool because I haven't done like a podcast version before. I've mostly done to classes. But I always sign up like anybody that wants to do it because we have a bunch of different options that we can sign up for. I'm happy to do it just because, again, I love doing this type of outreach and just trying to connect with people about something that I'm so passionate about and that I love talking about so much, not just learning about. Wow, that's awesome. And that's very helpful for the community and for people, you know, for people who are able to listen to this podcast. It's very beneficial i think for them to learn from a scientist yeah for sure sarah mcanulty i think is how you say your name so i learned about it from twitter even before i started doing it and i had always like planned on signing up whenever i felt like i you know quote unquote qualified which it's truly just if you're a scientist you can sign up and how you define scientist is kind of up to you uh and so I had been like waiting for the opportunity to do it and kind of following along with the journey. And she got her PhD a couple of years ago, but this is kind of what she does full time now is run the organization that, that hosts Skype a scientist. And so it's just really cool to see that transformation as well and see that kind of become her passion while she was doing her PhD. That's interesting. You say that because in addition to being a doctoral candidate, you run a blog with a partner, um, your part, what's your partner's name for the blog? So Fiona Kern Zimmerman. Uh, yeah, so she we've been friends since we were like, you know, in grade school. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't updated the blog. I think about when COVID started, it was just, we both got married not too long before that. Uh, and we were both in grad school. I was entering like a really work heavy time. She was also getting ready to finish. So like both of us were getting overwhelmed. So we just haven't had the opportunity to keep up with it, but it was a really good way to kind of process some of the issues. And I mean, I've certainly kept the spirit of it with me since I've like moved on and I I care a lot about a different um, advocacy type issues more. You know, I cared about them when we started the blog, but yeah, so she got her 
PhD in computational chemistry and, and we like kind of traded off posts and we're writing about just like the way that we thought about it was our personal experience in grad school. And again, just giving an opportunity for people to uh, learn more about what it's like to be a scientist and kind of how academics and scientists think about the world that they're in versus just what kind of gets reported on and what's more the common conception of what I'm so sorry, experiences like. No, that's okay. And that's helpful to uh, explain that and communicate that because a lot of times scientists, they get bogged down and they, uh, they're doing very important stuff, very intensive stuff, and it's tough for them to reapply their focus to something like communicating how they're actually feeling. Because, And the reason I brought up your blog is because you wrote a four-part series, correct? fatigued and fleeing yeah yeah fatigued and fleeing but then i did like the little you know ph instead of the f academia yeah about uh basically the way we talk about it is alt ac or alt academia careers but yeah just kind of um i mean it's almost funny i haven't read in a while but i do remember more or less what it was about and uh, the whole point of that series was I was seeing at that time, and I had kind of known even when I started grad school that I didn't necessarily want to become a professor, uh, just because that's not exactly where I saw my purpose. Uh, and then like the longer I've been in academia, the kind of more convicted I've become around that, but like for different reasons almost, uh, just because I mean, a small part of it is that there are very, very few tenure track professorships. So one part of it is there are plenty of, not plenty, but there's lots of ways you can teach at a university, not just tenure track, but tenure track is really, if you want to make a living, kind of how you need to uh, do it. And I think that there's some unfairness for professors, honestly, in how they are expected to teach, come up with curriculum, manage a lab, mentor students, all of these different things that like, it is not necessarily part of the curriculum. Like I'm not required to take any classes on pedagogy and learn how to teach and be a good teacher, even though I was a TA and like, I know things, so I should be able to explain them. But, you know, most people that have taken a college course can remember a professor that felt like didn't know how to teach and didn't know how to be a teacher. And so that part is frustrating for me, even though you can seek those resources out. And the other part of it is, you know, people stay in tenure track professorships for 20. That's like a short career, 20, 30, 40 years. And that means that, like, unless universities are growing exponentially, they're not able to necessarily absorb all of those positions. So by necessity, lots of students need to seek careers outside of academia but that's not necessarily how it's set up because, I mean, it's not hard to imagine that someone whose career has kind of followed the traditional path of getting, you know, their PhD, doing a postdoc after their PhD, and then eventually becoming a professor. That's the experience they know. That's the experience they've wanted. That's the only experience they kind of know how to mentor on to a certain degree. And so it very much feels kind of, like, why would you want to get a PhD if that's not, if you're not going to become a professor with it? Is is not the attitude of all professors by far, but it's kind of the attitude as a whole of academics. I think is the way to think about it. And I was just feeling frustrated by that as someone that like had known 
even as I started, that I didn't necessarily want to be a professor because of some of these things. And I think that a thing that I get really frustrated with too, and this is a part that's changed a lot, is kind of witnessing how certain administrative issues are handled in the university and how it very much starts to feel less and less like it's about the students and providing them with the best experience and more about, you know, making sure that the university has money, which is important. I get it. Obviously you can't offer services to students if the university is not funded. I'm, I'm not a fool, but it just feels kind of disingenuous to me and an important part of science to me, you know, I do this type of outreach. We had started the blog is making sure that there really is like not 20 years down the line when your specific research project has impact, that there is impact from our research. And I think that there is more opportunities for that, that academics who stay in academia their entire career are not necessarily aware of, or I mean, I don't want to say open to per se, but that that's just not something they even consider. And so that's really like why I was just trying to sort through all of those feelings, which is again, a part of the blog that I really enjoyed was like just being able to process these things, um, especially with someone who was going through them, but in a slightly different way, because my friend and I were at different institutions and just kind of figuring out those things. And it was good because we, you know, reached out for that series in particular, I reached out to, oh, I can't even remember what program her PhD was in, but another individual who I think was, I think it was like an English degree or something she was getting and had had kind of this negative experience in her mentorship, which is certainly not uncommon. And that was another thing that just made me feel like, okay, this is not kind of the the most glorious place to be. Like, this is not necessarily the only place that you can have a positive impact if you get a PhD. And so just trying to think more about, okay, if this is the, if the end result that I want is positively impacting society with my research and I, you know, think I'm smart, think I'm a hard worker, but can also recognize that not everyone's research is going to like be groundbreaking, then how can I achieve that? And to me, that means doing more outreach focused sorts of activities where my PhD can inform me in that I'm familiar with research and I'm familiar with how to read papers and you know, potentially still have some level of mentorship or, or actual research that I'm doing, but also having more of a communication aspect where I can help people understand what is going on in the field and then they can make more informed decisions. Uh, so in things like health and science policy, uh, and especially with COVID, that's kind of just been even more highlighted to me that like, and I mean, I say that because I can also see some of the issues that I complain about at my own university or that I see at other universities just being highlighted anytime there's a, a lot of bureaucracy. But, uh, you know, you can't change institutions always from the outside and always just complaining about them. So I have still like a glimmer of hope that there are institutions that I can help change by participating in them to some degree. That's awesome. And that's really interesting that you went, so you went into your PhD program knowing that you had no interest in a future in academia. Yeah. I mean, I would say like very, very little. (laughs) I didn't want to rule out the possibility because I am very much a, a grayscale person when it comes to most things and not a yes or no binary type person. Yes. But 
I'm really fortunate in that I have an aunt that she actually didn't finish her PhD, but she went to through a doctoral program. I have a lot of academics in my family. My grandfather's a doctor. My dad actually completed his PhD a few years ago. So I've seen people who have gotten gone into higher education and have said, like, I don't have to be a professor as part of that career path. And I have, am a very um, like pensive person. And I'm always trying to like make a plan and see into my future about how I want to move next. And so because of this exp uh, exposure to people who had been in higher education and gone through higher education, I had known for a long time, like I knew I wanted to get a PhD when I was like 14 years old, which, you know, is a little much of me and I'm glad I stuck with it. But on the same hand, I was thinking about these things a lot earlier than some people were. And so then when I was getting my bachelor's degree, I was paying some degree of attention to like who the researching professors were and kind of thinking and like I was following people on Twitter and Facebook and things like that. Because, you know, when I was in college, Facebook was a little bit bigger than it is now for most people. Um, and that was just I was seeing that the experiences professors were talking about having were experiences I didn't want to have. Like when I see my PI going through the tenure process or hear about the other PIs that have to go through it, that sounds awful. When I hear about the absolute headache it is to maintain funding through federally funded grants, which those pay lines have not been raised in years and years. And I'm like, do I really want to spend all this time doing what's effectively not research? Like, not that I don't like organizing and leading and mentoring, but I especially like the older that I get come more to the realization that like I can love my job and feel like I'm doing a lot of work and doing impactful work, but I don't need to be doing that work 24 seven. And that's very much like, I'm not sure if I use this phrase, but right. It's that culture of overwork. And that's very much present in academia. Um, and I mean, you're seeing some of that now, like there's the strike over at the university of California with the grad students, like, there's this expectation that people will work 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week when, you know, graduate contracts usually are not even full for full 40 hours if you're like a, a graduate research assistant. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't work 40 hours to get your PhD. Like I get that it takes a lot of work, but I just like do not see the value in that. I very much enjoy my other hobbies. I enjoy spending time with my family. I enjoy and, you know, having some degree of flexibility, because while I think that gets sold to us as academics, like, oh, you know, you get to choose your own schedule, whatever. And that's certainly true to the degree that like as a graduate student, I can work hypothetically like Thursday through Tuesday if I want or, you know, whichever days as long as I'm putting in the hours to get my work done. But on the other hand, you're also working like there are definitely times you have to go in and do a, a, an experiment on Christmas because that's the way the time points worked out or, and, and, you know, that's certainly not the worst. I'm, it's not like I'm doing heavy lifting and missing a bunch of time. Usually if you do an experiment on Christmas or something like that, you're not there for 12 hours. You're there for an hour or two to get the readings you need to move on. However, I was just like, yeah, I can see the flexibility argument people make. And when I witness it in real time, they get off like uh, you get a week off a year that you have to plan really hard around. And even then, you know, when my PI is out of town, 
I try really hard to respect those boundaries, but I also know if I really need him and email him, he'll respond. And I do not want that life. If I'm on vacation, I don't want to be sending emails about work. Like there's a reason I'm on vacation and it's not to spend any time working. So that's kind of part of why I've, I've just thought about moving away from it as well, because I can't like that level of the culture just does not resonate with me. Wow. That's um, very intensive to join. Yeah. And you, one of your articles has a cartoon and it's like, every day is Saturday. Woo. And the guy's parting. And then it's like, I'm not sure exactly what the second one said, but it's like, every single, I work every Saturday. Yeah, that's very much the vibe. So like, I, you know, in trying to like take care of myself and not overwork, like I'll go in later, but then I have to work, you know, eight or 10 hours. So if I go in at like 10am, that means earliest I'm getting out of six, but I still have to find time to like, make sure my house is clean, make sure my, like, I'm spending time with my family because regardless, like I have to talk to them so I can feel connected to them and they can feel connected to me. Spend time with my cat who I love and adore, but also needs like time to be around him. And then after all of those things that are just like, those are things you have to do to be a human being minus like errands, you know, grocery shopping, stuff for the house, whatever. Like then where's the time where I actually get to like clock out and relax and just not have to be involved with all of those things. And so Yeah. And I mean, for example, like one of my experiments right now, last 30 days, luckily I don't have to be there every day. It's like a five, 10, you know, a check every couple of days on it, but that means I'm planning out a month ahead of time. Okay. And luckily in this case, like I can choose to start on a Tuesday so then I can not come in too many weekends, but kind of the way it works out inevitably, I think I have to come in like one Saturday or Sunday. And even then I still come in Saturdays or Sundays because it's like, I got caught up helping an undergrad with something or this protocol took longer than I expected. And so now I'm going to have to move that around. If I move this, then that takes three days. And that means I'm going to be here on Saturday. And again, you know, you try not to come in 12 hours every Saturday, but it's inevitable that you're spending time that like you should have scheduled off because, and I say scheduled, there's no real schedule, which is again, the selling point but you're still coming in because you have to do your work and your experiments and get the results because, and this isn't just for someone who's trying to like get enough data for uh, their dissertation, this or their thesis. Um, This is true for like the techs that are helping support that person. This is true for undergrads that like might be busy during the week. And if their graduate students can be there on the weekends with them and that's the only time, then someone has to be there. This is true for the lab managers and other people like, it's uh, just a lot of work all the time because you're always trying to get more data because it's supporting, if it's not supporting coursework basically is kind of a way to think of the dissertation. You need data to apply for grants because you can't just say, this is a really good idea I have. No one will fund that. You have to say, this is a really good idea I have. And this is the evidence that I have for the idea maybe working out. So when you give me $3 million, I can actually show like have good faith that I'll be able to produce something. Okay. And those constant, you know, objectives, constant timelines, and they're they're never ending within academia either. And I feel like 
when someone sees a timeline there, then they push and they push and they push and then they kind of forget like, oh, need to cool it because after you know you when we think of timelines or something like being due then you're like oh once it's done then i'll be able to cool it but it seems like in academia that's always rolling and you know especially with people who i i know one person who was in a phd program and they had their dissertation nullified within one or two years and that just extends the whole thing. So then they start pushing um, more. Yeah, yeah, I'm very familiar with that. I've also had a lot of negative data, which is data that basically like the experiment worked, but there was no change based on whatever you changed, right? Uh, and so, yeah, that's another way to think about it. But it's right, if you think about it in the concept of the scientific process, right? You're making an observation, so you make your hypothesis, so you design an experiment, you get your results, you draw your conclusions, and from those conclusions, you like that's your new inference, and then you're making the new uh, hypothesis. And so it is just this cyclical thing where, yeah, you're gonna push and push to get some results out for whatever deadline, a conference, uh, a paper, a grant submission, whatever it is, but then like, if the grant gets accepted, you have a timeline you need to, complete experiments by because you have to do an annual report and you have to make sure you know you're basically because this is typically public money money from the government you have to be accountable and say like look how like worthily we're spending the the taxpayer's dollar or you know if it's money from the university because many universities like when you first start a lab offer startup funds and things like that you have to say like when you're going up for your first round of tenure your first promotion, you have to say like, look how I've used the university's funds very wisely and look all of the different things we've accomplished. And so, yeah, it's never, there's always a new deadline. Like, and I mean, you know, that's life to a certain degree, like any job, you get one deliverable in, it's not like, okay, the company's done, we're shutting down, go find a new job. But certainly I think it's uh, a little more unique in academia that like, it is just truly constant that, there's a new deadline that you're trying to produce for. And it's, you know, within the next six months, because you know when all the grant deadlines are and you know the semester deadlines for, you know, when you have meetings with your committee for your dissertation or whatever it may be. And so it's always, yeah, it's a it's a pretty constant treadmill of, of more work. <laughs> yes, it is a constant treadmill. And although you, you did mention it's kind of the same in um like a professional career-based or in industry-based environment but i say unless someone's maybe a startup in a startup phase or i don't know if they're managing a particular project that has very odd if they're managing a project then it can be like that but a lot of times i don't know something about academia and being in academia and having things like I mean, for an undergrad test, but then for a postgrad, a graduate student, you know, those dissertations, your research, you know, getting these various types of data and, you know, doing things with them and communicating that to your peers and putting things together. It, it seems like it's really easy to get overwhelmed. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I know 
I don't think I wrote most of the, I, I think we did write up a, a blog post or two about mental health in graduate school. And I think that was mostly Fiona that had written those, but the part why it's easy to do it is everyone feels overworked. Everyone feels overwhelmed because even though the, you know, exact, uh, I'm just trying to think what they normally call milestones that you have to accomplish, you know, however many papers, other presentations you need to do, whatever it is, usually those are pretty discreet. Like you have to turn in one, two, three papers or publish one, two, three papers. You have to complete candidacy, which is basically just uh, an exam. We did a blog post on that and I'm remembering it because it's a thing that most people don't know about, but basically, you know, an exam where you're proposing that you can come up with your own ideas and prove that like the next three to four years of investment you as a graduate student are going to be worth it because you're not just like following orders. Uh, Cause it's, you know, the whole point of a dissertation is that it is this new addition to the field, even if it's a tiny one. And so, oh gosh, now I just got distracted where I was going at the candidacy. Oh, mental health you, in graduate school. Right. Do you take that test after you've been accepted into the university? Yeah. So there's a couple different versions of it. There's cumulative exams. There's the candidacy exam, which usually every program has a version of that. Some of the other exams like cumulative or comprehensive exams, not every university has, but the candidacy exam typically involves a proposal that it depends on the program when you do it. Ours was at the end of your second year. Uh, but basically once you complete the candidacy process, which is where you write a proposal and present it to your committee, then you kind of become just research focused. So you're done with classes and you're just working on research for your dissertation. Okay. And then from there, they want to assess your ability to not just take instructions, but to actually create and to... Yeah. So for uh, usually you have to, um, at least I say usually, in our program, the way that we did it was styled in the form of a grant proposal, which is actually a relatively short document, which the point being kind of making sure you're an effective communicator because you only get a few pages to talk about these things. But it's including background information, preliminary data, uh, experimental design, possible things that could go wrong because, you know, funding organizations understand that no matter how good of a scientist someone is, you're not going to be able to predict every result you get or else a lot of the experiments wouldn't be worth doing. So kind of saying, okay, well, we're going to try it this way, but it's possible we might need to do it this way. How much time, effort, whatever that would take. Uh, and then we have to present on those proposals for our program. And so our program doesn't have a lot of limitations on what your proposal can be about. Uh, it's kind of up to how your PI directs you, but no one else is able to help you. You're not supposed to get help from like other students about your topic or, you know, uh, other professors, anything like that. It's all supposed to be completely independent. And so again, the point being kind of to demonstrate like your PI, your advisor, isn't coming up with your entire project and doing all of the thinking for you because the idea is supposed to be when you graduate with your PhD, you are capable of coming up with your own research ideas and following through with those to the end of the kind of process, which would be a publication. Because once you're graduated from the program, you can go on and do a postdoc, a postdoctoral fellowship at another lab, another university. Um, there are ones in the government. You can even do industry postdocs. So like at 
you know, any of the firms that designed the COVID vaccine, all of those have uh, postdoc programs. Uh, and there, you know, you are still will have some form of a supervisor, but are expected to be a little bit more independent. And then again, if you go on to become a professor or, you know, whatever kind of post post doc life you have, you're going to be expected to come up with your own ideas on what types of experiments you would like to do and what type of uh, hypotheses you'd like to make in your field. Okay. That's, uh, that's kind of scary and a huge expectation for, um, I mean, it's kind of what grad students sign up for, but it's still, um, it's intimidating a bit. I guess. Uh, you don't think about it too much when you're in the thick of it. Uh, it's just kind of everyone, everyone else is doing the same thing. And while it is independent, you know, once you're not doing candidacy, it's not like anyone's going to call the police on you because you talk to another professor. Like that's the whole point of science is to a certain degree, have some exchange of ideas. But on the other hand, you're not going to get a lot of job offers if you can't demonstrate that you can think about problems in a unique way. Uh, Cause you know, again, the whole point of, of the dissertation of the thesis is you saying, these are the experiments that I did the conclusions that I made. So then that led me to these next steps. And that's showing that whenever you go on to design new experiments, because typically you can't take like all of the work you did in your dissertation to the next lab you go to, you would be able to come up with new ideas. And so it's, you know, you can't, if you ask someone, oh, are you an independent thinker? Most people will say yes, because no one thinks that they're influenced by other people and that they can't come up with their own ideas. But this is the best way you know, is the best, it's the best way right now that we have to demonstrate that people have those types of capabilities. But it's a lot more collaborative than that. And, you know, when you're exposed to it and around other scientists all the time, it's, you know, we have conversations in the office like, oh, I'm getting this weird result. Do your colonies grow like this? Do you know? And, you know, that's when you can say someone who's grown up a thousand plates when you've only grown up a hundred, they're like, oh yeah, I've seen that a bunch. That's what this means. Or, you know, when you've done your reading in the literature because your result says one thing, but it doesn't quite make sense with this other result, you can go to your peers, your colleagues, your friends, and say like, this is what's happening. Do you ever see anything like that? Do, do you have any ideas about it? So, you know, you're not completely isolated and alone all the time, but you aren't going to have a lot of credibility if, you know, it you're, it's obvious to people that you're always using someone else's ideas. Yes, that makes sense. And also the way you stated that where, you know, all these scientists are together, they're in the same place. Yes, they're going to communicate. Yes, they're going to exchange ideas. And they're, you know, those ideas are going to mesh and um, someone's going to have some other experience that will be able to establish some new ideas. So things do exchange um, and that does make it less less like, oh, this is just me. Oh, this is, um, I'm really got the weight of the world on my shoulders. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me personally, when I was in undergrad, I was in computer science class and we had this computer science lab and I tried to do it all on my own. And um, I was not getting very far. And then I was mm -hmm. seeing these 
everyone, you know, a few other people collaborating with each other, and they were just whiz, you know, skate, you know, just whizzing by. And granted, that's a very different type of learning because at the grad level, like you said, this is a lot more independent thought, a lot more um, developing things that are a bit unique and a lot of critical thinking. Not to say that this lab wasn't critical thinking, but um there you know it's inspiration comes from other sources and i think being in sorts of labs that grad students find themselves in are really valuable because you can find inspiration easily everywhere yeah i mean it's the same reason we go to conferences and poster sessions and like most programs have seminars so speakers will come in from just like other parts of the university or from outside the university. And it just gives you the opportunity to see what other people are doing. And if they're finding something that, you know, there's 20 different metabolic processes. And so if someone else is looking at the same process, but they're looking at slightly different genes, the findings that they're talking about the conference can, you can start to connect the dots in your own project, right? And be like, okay, so if they're seeing that, you know, in these like high salt conditions or whatever, the bacteria is outputting this particular compound. I see that compound sometimes, but I'm not using the high salt conditions. So can I kind of backtrack and see maybe it's related? And I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to describe like in very abstract terms like that without trying to quote someone's research. Cause you know, even at a conference, they usually don't want you just telling everybody about what's going on, but uh, that, it, that's the whole point. And like, yeah, it's on your own, but, um, you know, it's like, uh, if you go on Google scholar, I forget exactly what the quote is and I'm sure it's like some proverb or something, but it says something along the lines of like standing on the shoulders of giants and you're never coming up with an idea that is completely new and original. Right. I mean, that's like my dissertation project is based on stuff that we've studied in staph aureus which is like a bug you find on your skin it's one that we understand pretty well and i've just like applied it five times out and i'm trying to look at a kind of similar thing in mycobacterium so i'm not you know i didn't think about oh well maybe i'll study this new organism because we've described the organism to a certain degree i'm studying like just this eensy beensy little tiny part that you know, even if it doesn't change the world, 5, 10, 20 years down the line, it might contribute to someone, you know, helping to develop a new antibiotic or realizing that like the gene that I ended up talking about, which, you know, when I'm done with my dissertation, I might not do much more about it, but they'll be doing, looking at some other aspect of regulation and say, oh, well, this gene showed up in this study, which is how I've learned about some of the genes that I'm looking at, you know, 10 years ago, and they didn't keep studying it, but it makes sense with what I'm seeing in my experiments today. And so as much as your ideas are your own, and you have to think critically about putting all that, you know, synthesizing all of that information, you're never doing it actually all on your own. So no. And, you know, that's a really interesting point that you bring up that you may write something in that that won't be referenced usefully referenced for five or 10 years. And you might, we might never, you know, someone might write something and they'll never find out that their, 
paper, their literature that they posted that's on the internet that's available and free to download. Someone downloaded that, went through 10 to 30 pages of research paper, read it, and gained maybe maybe not much, maybe just a little bit, but they gained something that helped them progress in more research. For me personally, um, Google, Google Scholar is awesome mm-hmm. because I can see, you know, say I'm, int- I'm an engineer, say I'm interested in some sort of technology uh, or a lot of times Google Scholar will have some research about it if it's a bit novel and, you know, I, I download those if they're free and I, mm-hmm. and I read them. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's exactly the point. Like, you know, and I mean, I know you're not bringing this up, but that almost speaks to why there's this like bigger push for open access. So, you know, you're talking about if they're free, you download them. And there are many journals that are free to the public, but there's a lot more that aren't. And I mean, you know, most people probably can spare $20 one time to download one article. But a lot of times if you're trying to look into a new technology, you might want five or six articles that happen to be there. And then that's easily a hundred dollars. And maybe you have that money, but maybe you'd also rather spend a hundred dollars on like a nice Christmas gift for someone or whatever it is. And again, you know, a lot of this funding is coming from government funding, which is taxpayer money. And it's kind of this weird argument as to why journals then get to, you know, because we have to pay to publish, then get to keep the knowledge from the public that, you know, a little bit a few degrees away paid for that knowledge to be produced. Uh, And I think there's no harm in having that available. I think, you know, you can make an argument about whether people should necessarily be like doing science in their kitchen. I think that's a little bit different, but I don't think there's any harm in people reading through the articles because even if you can't understand it, you can certainly reach out to scientists. We get tons of emails, but I think there's most scientists really enjoy trying to get the people to talk about their science because, you know, and truly if you ever run across a paper that you isn't free to download, if you email the authors, there's a decent chance they'll send it to you because like we love it when our peers read it and they further our knowledge, but we think it's just really the coolest thing ever when lay people, people that aren't in academia, that aren't necessarily researchers, want to learn more about our topics. Because that's uh, a, definitely a huge part of who we're making this research for. Yes, and you as scientists invest so much time and so much of your life and so much of your thought to this work i mean it would be awesome if more people read it and more people appreciated it and if you could if scientists could communicate that it would be you know like you say it's awesome for them Mm -hmm. and so you stated that you have you grew up in a family that was immersed within higher education you knew that you wanted to be a PhD from 14 years old. Did you know that you wanted to take on your candidacy in biomedical service? Is it bio? Did I mention? Biomedical sciences. Biomedical sciences. Okay, almost got it. Did you know (laughs) that that was the field you wanted to be in since 14 years old? 
Yeah, so I guess let me clarify. I knew I wanted to be a microbiologist when I was like 13, 14 years old. I probably decided I wanted to go to graduate school when I was like eight because my dad had a master's even when I was growing up. Not that I knew what a master's degree was all that much. It was just what you got after you got your bachelor's degree. But, you know, both my parents went to college, so it was very much just an expectation that I would too growing up. So obviously that is like a point of privilege for me that I understand it can be hard for people to like imagine that uh, an eight-year-old is sitting around being like, no, of course I'm going to go to graduate school. But, uh, you know, I knew I was going to get a bachelor's degree. So then I was just like, well, what do you do after the bachelor's degree? And it's like, oh, you can get a master's degree. And I'm like, okay, maybe I'll do that. I like my dad enough that I think I could get a master's degree too. Uh, but you know, many scientists were interested in nature and learning about the world around them from when they were little. I am one of many, but I started out much more interested in paleontology and, uh, I have, am still obsessed with Jurassic Park as not accurate. It might be just because, you know, there's always that little kid part of you that thinks it would be really, really cool to be able to go to a zoo that had dinosaurs in it. But, uh, I used to make my own like little coloring books and stuff. And then I kind of moved on. My new favorite animal was dolphins. I wanted to be a marine biologist. And another way that I was really fortunate is there was a local university that my dad just, I honestly haven't asked for the specifics of the story and I retell it enough. I really should, but had reached out to the university and said, oh, you know, my daughter really likes marine biology. She wants to be a marine biologist. Could we come check it out? And they took us on a bit of a tour. I think of just like the department. I only remember like one hallway. I was relatively young, maybe eight years old or so. And uh, they kind of broke my heart because they said, and I mean, this is true. Most marine biologists don't study the megafauna, things like dolphins and whales and all the cool charismatic animals you think of. They're studying the microbiomes of the ocean, more or less. They're studying algae or coral polyps, which you also can't see. You can just see the, you know, the coral skeleton and things like that. And I was kind of like, uh, that sounds boring. I don't want to study stuff you can't really see. Not my vibe. Thanks. No, thanks. So, uh, you know, I was taking these research classes in middle school and high school and in middle school, I learned about botany and I got really into that for a while. But then in eighth grade, we had a new science teacher come in and she started sponsoring microbiology proje projects in the research class. And I was like, okay, I'll try something else new. This sounds kind of cool. I was in love. She was like, yeah, if you're going to be a microbiologist, you have to really enjoy like labeling tons of plates. We, you know, put the media for the bacteria to grow in in petri plates and you have to enjoy that you have to get used to the smell of auger all of these things i'm like i can do all that and i mean to this day auger does not smell great you know this is basically like nutrient media so it has this weird salty a little bit stale musty it does not smell good by any means but i think many microbiologists like just have a fondness for it because you get used to being around it so much uh, and I made sure my handwriting got small so I'd be able to write on plates as much as I needed to. And I've just been obsessed with microbiology ever since. And I even knew, you know, I think because I was doing microbiology projects in high school, I eventually kind of fine tuned myself that I was really interested in mycobacteria. So I like was planning out my future even before I got to college about where I wanted to end up. And so then when I was doing my bachelor's degree in microbiology, I 
was always looking for an excuse to learn more about mycobacteria because they, compared to most of the other bacteria we study, are in this weird kind of section where, you know, some people have heard of the terms gram-positive and gram-negative. So, for example, staph is a gram-positive bacteria. It's related to the cell wall of the bacteria. And uh, E. coli is a gram-negative bacteria, but then TB is in this weird family where Sometimes it gets described as similar to gram positive because some aspects of a cell wall are like that, but it isn't really. It is its own family of what's considered acid fast. And all of these names just come from the stains you do to look at the cell wall. But it's got this really thick and complex cell wall, which is cool enough as it is. But then it's, you know, a lot of the species are intracellular pathogens, which is a pretty rare thing. There are definitely several types of those, but it just does lots of weird stuff. And I mean, to this day, tuberculosis, the kind of the type of mycobacteria everyone knows about, is one of the most infectious and deadly diseases on the planet. And uh, that's when I started learning more about antibiotic resistance. And I was like, okay, so this is a problem. And certainly antibiotic resistance doesn't occur exclusively in TB, but this is, you know, kind of where that bleeding heart part of me, that impact on society part of me was like, okay, this is something that like we need to be paying attention to. We need to learn how to address. And you can do that in part through research. And so I was always trying to find more out about the antibiotic resistance mechanisms and how the bugs, which is kind of the shorthand we use for pathogens, how the bugs were working against and evolving all of the drugs that we're coming up with and kind of this history of antibiotic resistance. Uh, and that's why I ended up studying genetic regulation in mycobacteria, because when I was applying to grad school, I only looked at programs that had TB uh, labs, which TB is a biosafety level three organism. So biosafety level is just a categorization for how you have to handle different types of organisms. So if anyone's seen Contagion, right, which very well done movie, arguably, but it's based on the SARS, initial SARS um, pandemic, I believe. And so the, that displays BSL-4 laboratories. So that's for things that don't have a lot of treatment and uh, typically can kill you pretty quickly. And so novel organisms typically will end up in a BSL-4 if they're causing disease or novel pathogens. Uh, Ebola is a not, uh BSL-4 organism, but then there's BSL-3, which is a little bit stepped down. So in BSL-4 labs, you have to have positive pressure suits, you know, an air supply. And then there's a lot of secondary containment, meaning that like you can't just carry like a, a plate around the room and things like that. And there's also bigger controls, administrative and engineering controls are what we refer to them as basically limiting access to the building and increased filtration about the air that goes into and leaves the laboratory. Because for example, you know, for an airborne organism, you can't just let that go through your normal HVAC because it can potentially be released into the air around the building, which is not great. And so that I've some of those controls continue down to the BSL-3, which is uh, the lab that you have to handle tuberculosis in. And so there's a, a limited uh, availability of those labs in the country. And so those are the programs I look to. I was also selective about location because my daughter, um, you know, we have shared custody of her. And so she lives in Orla uh, in Orlando. And so I didn't want to leave Florida for my program. 
And so that was part of it too. And so there aren't a ton of them in Florida. And so I emailed my PI and said, Hey, I'm thinking about applying because the fun thing about grad school is oftentimes you either have to come in with funding or you have to hope that a PI has space in their lab because they typically have to fund you. And so I emailed him saying, Hey, I'm thinking about applying to the school. Do you think you'll have room in the next year or so? Because I emailed him over the summer, you know, could I come chat with you about everything? Uh, and I actually ended up having a fever that morning, which I don't love saying it, but I was just like desperate to go into this meeting and didn't really realize that I was having a fever until I had driven. I wasn't living that close by at the time, like almost an hour and a half to get there. And I'm like, okay, it's not that bad. I think maybe I'm just really nervous too. Uh, and kind of had like a mini interview with him. And it worked out that his two current PhD students were probably both graduating within the next year. And I should apply because then by the time that they graduated, I would be coming in and there would be enough funding. And uh, that's how it turned out. It was fortunately a really smooth process. You know, I had a good GPA in college. I had some research experiment experience and I had been working in a, a food lab for a while as well. So I had a pretty good resume, I like to think. Um, and then I ended up in my PhD program. And then that's where I've been now for uh, just started my sixth year of the semester. So quite wow. a while <laughs> and when do you expect to graduate uh just the dreaded question today is i will say family members if you're listening don't ask your doctoral student when they're graduating but it's okay to ask on a podcast because it's kind of the question everyone wants to know but uh great question hopefully in the next year or two because that's really all the time i have left but i've been getting more promising data usually i would have at least well, usually I would have graduated by now. Many people graduate in the five to seven year window. And I think there's only a couple of us left in the people that started with me. But, uh, you know, COVID is one delay. I got really sick in the middle of the program. So I was out for like six months, also not helpful. And then I've also had a lot of negative data where I'm like doing an experiment and I'm not seeing a change. And so it's taken me a while to kind of rework my hypotheses so that I can actually be heading in some type of direction instead of just saying we've identified this thing it doesn't do what we think it does which is not all that publishable of information it's not not worth publishing but you usually need a little bit more to make a, a full paper and so hopefully soon-ish uh, definitely as soon as possible but <laughs> no no exact timelines yet unfortunately i think it's Though, you know, <clears throat> some people might not allow themselves six months and accept that it, maybe I need to take time off. I'm sick. I'm not doing well. Um, or even through COVID, they just rush and they rush and they rush. And then it's just, it's not as rich as an experience. And even then it's like, what, did you have something to say? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Honestly, I didn't fully voluntarily take six months off for most of that time. Uh, you know, like walking down to the mailbox was a lot of effort. So I very much couldn't like, you know, spend hours in the lab, not even, you know, an hour. It was exhausting to like walk outside to make sure my body was getting some level of exercise. So it was very much a forced break. But yeah, I mean, similar to COVID, you know, when we first went into the lockdown, um, my daughter was staying with us for most of the time. And 
my husband was still working because he works uh, also in a lab, but not in an academic setting, more of a government type water testing lab. And so they were still open and obviously people and they would work in shifts, whatever it was. But, you know, he would go in during the day. My daughter was home and needed someone with her. And like she was doing virtual school. So I was home for that. And then when he got home around three or four, I would leave and go to lab for a few hours. And so, uh, but yeah, it was very much difficult to do. Cause I mean, that just gets back to the point I was making earlier about how, you know, I can only make so much progress because I'm effectively working for like 15 hours a day trying to keep everything under control. And it was just obviously stressful in general. You know, I have, parents who were both alive, luckily, but it was very stressful to watch people that were like over 60, close to 60 around me and like just constantly worrying about them and even just my younger family members, you know? So it was a lot. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, I do think that stress contributed negatively to both those times in, in making it that, you know, even at home, I was, just like too overwhelmed to like read papers on the computer sometime because I was just like feeling it from every direction. Uh, and so I just, it was, took me a while, probably until COVID to really learn like how to kind of give myself a break sometimes and that it was okay not to be working 24 seven. And then if it, that means it takes me a little bit longer to graduate, that's not uh, a negative, you know, doesn't, put a negative perspective on on my journey through through graduate school no it doesn't seem to have after six years you seem to still have uh, a lot of enthusiasm for it i like to think so at least <laughs> what was your sickness what was the reason that you left for six months i had an infection it was really fun i uh, i mean you know, fun in a sarcastic way. Uh, I, my work in the food lab was actually really stressful. I did a lot of overtime there. And so I didn't kind of realize how tough it had been. Um, but after my first year of grad school, I was about to get married and uh, I had been just kind of in a lot of pain. Didn't really, it wasn't constant, didn't know why. Um, eventually getting diagnosed with uh, a pretty big abscess. So like just an internal infection, basically, um, to the point that when I had the CT scan in the ER, the doctor was like, how are you not in enough pain to like even be conscious? And I was like, great question. Uh, I would love to know too. Um, and so then that was just uh series of surgeries over the month, like draining the abscess, trying to make sure I, you know, would clear the infection. They thought I had some other immunocompromised conditions because basically the, the way it worked with the abscess was it's, you either have this kind of pre-existing condition that makes you more susceptible or it just happens randomly. And because it wasn't healing, uh, they thought it was that I had had some condition that hadn't been diagnosed. Uh, but then around the end of the six months, I had gone to a different specialist and they asked why I hadn't taken a particular medication. And I explained that when I had been in the ER, they had given the medication, but they had given it at the same time as another one. And I had like flushed red. I didn't even feel it, but my husband and sister-in-law were there and they were like, 
you're bright red now. I'm like, oh, it's probably just an allergic reaction because I do already have some to some medications that are not that intense, but kind of similar, like a rash. Uh, and just said, okay, well, I'm just writing this off on my charts for the rest of time to make sure I don't get a weird rash that potentially like progresses into anaphylaxis or anything. But when I went to this specialist and he asked about the medication, he was like, yeah, that doesn't sound like the typical reaction. I'm going to prescribe it. You know, just watch yourself for the first day or two. If it, you have any symptoms, of course, like stop taking it, go to the ER, whatever. But uh, I did not. And it like kind of resolved within a month. And I still had a couple more surgeries after that, but I was finally like able to start actively participating, like going to class. Luckily, you know, I had gotten sick kind of close to the end of the spring semester and managed to like get better enough that I was able to go to class sometimes uh, at, at the least, like able to keep up my grades. But over the summer, I was very much out of commission uh, and so in our program, usually over the summer, you're not taking, um, in your first two years before you just are doing research credits, you're not taking any academic courses, you're just doing research credits. And so I was able to kind of take the summer off. I was doing some reading. I would occasionally go into the lab, but not very much because I was just so exhausted all the time and still in a bit of pain as well. Um, but then by the fall semester is when it kind of all resolved and I was able to, get back in but it was uh, an adventure to be sure that sounds like a very tough and painful adventure yeah yeah i do think i talked about it a little bit on the blog i yeah i definitely i think i did have a post about it because it was just a really weird experience uh as someone that has always been you know i enjoy swimming and running and all of these types of active hobbies. And then I was basically housebound for six months and it was just like overwhelming in kind of the shock it was to my identity. And I will say like the main positive thing that came out of that one, strengthen the relationship with my husband. I mean, I tested that in sickness and in health right away. Uh, like it was literally within a week of our wedding, I was in the ER, <laughs> but uh, it also really kind of ignited my passion for disability advocacy and just like recognizing issues with accessibility. And because, I mean, I was effectively disabled. I never claimed disability, but again, like I was not participating in life in any type of normal way because again, walking places was exhausting. Partici like just thinking too much was sometimes exhausting. And it really just kind of opened my eyes to disability activism. And uh, I mean, since then I am by no means a great disability advocate, but it is something that now I'm always considering, you know, when I've participated in different types of committees on campus and things like that and different activities and saying like, okay, you know, when we went to a virtual program, Zoom has been really great for uh, accessibility because students that, have issues getting to class, not just because they have chronic illnesses where they can be exhausted or they were immunocompromised so they didn't necessarily want to come to campus even if people were wearing masks. You know, people have issues with getting to campus because of transportation or for any host of reasons. You know, it really increased accessibility in certain ways. And I mean, you know, example being as well, people with like hearing difficulties. Sorry about that. Uh, hearing difficulties 
they, you know, can use the closed captions that are available on Zoom and a variety of other recording services that they didn't have access to before. And so that was another time where I was just constantly trying to remind people like, you know, and I think part of the issue that we run into with disability advocacy is people feeling like if they are not disabled, they have to go out of their way to make things accessible. But what it really comes down to is universal design. So like the common example with this is, you know, at crosswalks, they have uh, the dropped curb or, and also like uh, that patterned uh, walk right there before you kind of enter into the street, you know? And that's really great for people that have vision disabilities and are, you know, blind or cannot see very well, and it's harder for them to make their way around. And if they have to step off a full curb, that they can potentially hurt, fall, whatever it is. But if they have, you know, that sloped curb, as well as the texture in the pavement, they can know that they're about to enter in the street. But that's really useful for people that are pushing a stroller because now they're not trying to like pick it up and down over curbs. I like it because sometimes I'm not like always paying full attention, which I wouldn't recommend when I'm crossing the street. But if I'm like in a conversation with someone, if I'm waiting for the crosswalk or whatever, I can kind of know if like we're, you know, if I'm distracted, if I'm stepping too close to the street or something because the pavement changes. And like there are these little things, but like disability access is also really useful for people that are not disabled, because it not just means that disabled people have access to things that abled people already have, but that now abled people typically can start to use services better as well. Because like, you know, while subtitles on a movie might seem distracting, people that not just are hard of hearing, but have auditory processing disorders, now it means they can enjoy the movie better. And I mean, why do you not want your art to reach more people? And like people that have disabilities should be able to enjoy art just as much as the next person. And so I think that that's just something that like I've carried with me since I got sick is, is really learning to care about those uh, types of issues. Disability assistance policy. It's really a, it's a, it's a sign of civilization of human civilization it's protecting the weak who really can't protect themselves and just doing the most basic things. It's not even protecting. It's providing the most basic of life's joy, joys, going for a walk outside of your home safely, um, feeling comfortable enough, safe enough to go grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. It's and it may seem like a burden, but there may be a day when, you know, no one, no one gets out. No one's figured out how to get out of this life alive, you know, out of this world alive. And um, hopefully we all get old before. And if we get old, we're going to, we're going to lose capabilities in our bodies. And we're going to, uh, and almost certainly before we get old, as you unfortunately experienced, we're going to get sick. And, you know, we're all human, even if we eat healthy foods and exercise a lot and do everything supposedly well, um, it might not matter. Mm -hmm. and yeah, I think it's something like 
20% of Americans are disabled in some capacity. And I'm, I never wow. remember from that statistic if it's from like, I mean, if it's from, you know, uh, like those, that's the amount of Americans that are on disability, which is just like a whole other can of worms about how like it's great that we have disability for people but for example if someone is on disability oftentimes they cannot get legally married to someone because then their income changes and then they are no longer eligible for disability even though they still can't work and then that means they're losing some component of their income wow and uh but yeah exactly i mean just because you are young and healthy right now there is no assurance that tomorrow you will not be in a car accident. And now you are in chronic pain for the rest of your life because there's no way to like properly address or it takes a long time to diagnose the pain that you're having. And I think that like COVID too has hopefully influenced people to come around on disability access and accessibility issues because like long COVID is disabling. Like when you have mental fatigue, you know, when you can only do like one or two things that day and that's it, like, do you want to be, feel like you can't you can, go to the grocery store anymore? Yeah, I'm sorry. I can see his reflection in the window. But the point is, uh, yeah, if they don't have that access, like long COVID, I think, is just going to be at this mass disabling event. It has been a mass disabling event that I don't think we're necessarily prepared for because people think that they just have to tough it alone. And that is not the case. Like, not only should we as a society be working harder to make sure that people are included and have access to the things that you want to have access to disabled or not, but just, you know, even attitudes about disability. Like I wear glasses, anybody that wears glasses or contacts, like that is effectively a disability. Like you cannot see if you do not have some type of aid. And of course I think it would. And I think that like, that's admittedly as someone that really only wears glasses in terms of disability, but, like, it would be great if all disability was acceptable as, like, oh, you need to wear glasses? Okay, cool. We'll make sure that we write on your license that you should be wearing your glasses when you drive so you're not driving without them and then can still read the street signs or see that the lights have changed, whatever it is. But uh, that, like, it, there is, that's a, an example of, like, we do not need to completely like rip a society apart and change it completely for it to stay accessible to everyone. No. And that's a good, these thought patterns are really good examples of how kind of, you know, yes, it was a personal experience, but a lot of people within the research realm, a lot of people within your PhD environment aren't thinking in those form of ways. And, public policy in how things, you know, how research can be applied, as you said, not five, 10 years down the line, but sooner and how, you know, you can communicate that now. Mm -hmm. And Lauren, to wrap things up, I guess, is there, so you know, you don't want um, to go into academia after your candidacy finishes is do you have any vision of what you would like to do or is there any plans after your phd program yeah so 
No specific plans. I have wanted to work for the CDC for a long time, and I still do to a certain degree, and there are fellowship opportunities there. Um, and I think that that's one uh, opportunity that I'm still considering. But the the like umbrella term that I use is science policy, and that's really being there to advise policymakers with the science is what I'm envisioning myself doing. Kind of the fun part, and I talk about this a, bit, a little bit in that series, of getting your PhD is that you get to have a lot more freedom in what you choose to do because you have that level of qualification. And so I am definitely not going to say no to opportunities that kind of fit the vision that I have. But uh, yeah, it comes down to helping inform policy with, with research. And I mean, COVID has kind of only solidified that for me in witnessing a lot of people's interpretations, I'll say generously, of the research. And, uh, you know, I feel really lucky because the funding agency, the NIH, is split up into a bunch of different groups. And I am fortunate that uh, Dr. Fauci is actually the leader of my group within the NIH. So that felt really fun. I mean, you know, fun or not, but it was really cool to know. I'm like, oh, like it's 20 degrees separate, but I have a connection there. Um, and it's kind of nice now to be able to like, maybe one day a Dr. Fauci is who I'll end up like, but that's an idea as well. And I also have, um, I mean, for a lot of reasons, you know, I started getting more into politics when I was an undergrad, but just as the years go by and kind of just understanding truly like I am a white woman in the United States of America. I grew up pretty well off. The incredible amount of privilege I have had and just the more I encounter people that do not have that level of privilege. And I think the way that I try and reconcile that is like attempting to weaponize it to a certain degree and that I know I can get into certain doors that other people can't. And that is just like the first step because once I'm in the door, I can hold it open for everyone else. And so that's, part of why I envision in like politics, I think that I can make a good change there. I think that's maybe how a lot of politicians start out. So I don't want to submit myself in that way. But uh, that's the very vague answer, I think, to your question. Well, best of luck to you, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. My guest today has been Lauren Bonafont. Thanks for coming on the podcast.